Welcome to episode 131 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Aniela. She shared her experience of working as a lobbyist with MOA last year, and I'll link to that episode in the show notes so you can check it out. But today, we talked about her experience of being a JAG officer in the Marine Corps, and then she transferred off active duty and into the reserves. She switched from being a JAG officer to civil affairs, so it was really interesting to hear her experience both on active duty as a JAG officer and what she did in the reserves in civil affairs and her deployments, and I'm really glad I got a chance to talk to her because I enjoyed getting a chance to talk to her for the MOA interview, and I'm excited to hear more of her military story this week, so let's get started. You're listening to Season 3 of the Women of the Military Podcast. Here you will find the real stories of female service members. I'm Amanda Huffman. I am an Air Force veteran, military spouse, and mom. I created Women of the Military Podcast in 2019 as a place to share the stories of female service members past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Welcome to the show, Aniela. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks so much. I'm really happy to be here, too. Yeah, and you were on the podcast when I interviewed you with MOA, and you talked about being a lawyer with them, so people can go back and listen to that bonus episode. I'll link to it in the show notes. But now we get to talk about your military time, so let's start that by talking about why did you decide to join the military? I decided to join when I was still working on my bachelor's degree at UNLV, and I knew I was going to go to law school because that had always been a dream of mine, but I just wasn't sure what I was going to do after law school and what type of law I was going to practice. So I started asking around to lawyers and getting career advice for people who were already in the field. And it seemed like there were basically three options. One was to go work for a law firm and do a lot of really grunt work and have a huge workload and billable hours and not be able to do anything interesting until you're much farther along in your career. The other was to be a public defender, which sounded like it paid very poorly and also was equally overworked. <laughs> so those people didn't seem to have great quality of life to speak of. And then the other option I looked into was being a prosecutor. And it seemed like that was there were limited opportunities and you really needed to have some sort of connections or political ambitions to really get into the field as a prosecutor. So I started thinking about unconventional options. And I happened to see a poster at UNLV on one of the bulletin boards saying Marine Corps judge advocate programs. If you want to be a lawyer for the Marine Corps, call us, something to that effect. And I had never thought about the military before, even though my dad was a Marine, my uncle was a Marine, my godfather was a Marine. So I came basically from a Marine Corps family, but it never had occurred to me that I could be a Marine or that I would ever want to be a Marine or in the military at all. So that one poster just sort of 
gave me an insight into an option that I never even thought of before. And when I started the process of talking to the officer selection office and getting more information about what it's like to be a judge advocate in the Marine Corps, I really became excited because I found that there are so many opportunities that exist for lawyers in the military that don't exist at all in the civilian world. So I really saw this as my opportunity to do something that was like a once in a lifetime experience as a lawyer. Yeah. So let's talk about that. If someone was listening and they wanted to learn, like, how is it different in the military to be a lawyer than in the civil sector? To begin with, you get a lot more responsibility at a much earlier stage of your career. So my first assignment was at a very small Marine Corps logistics base in Barstow, California. And there are very few Marines there because it's mostly civilian employees who repair all of the equipment for the Marine Corps and rebuild things. But that turned out to be a really great experience because I was the installation staff judge advocate as a first lieutenant. So basically, you know, I was 25 years old being the lawyer who was in charge of advising the commander for a really large Marine Corps logistics base. It was experience that I couldn't have got as a civilian lawyer, at least an equivalent. So it was like being a general counsel of a large company at a very early stage of your career. So I got great opportunities there, even though most people would have thought Barstow was a pretty rough place to be stationed given it's in the middle of the California desert. The closest thing to it was actually a big army training base called Fort Irwin and then the Marine Corps equivalent of that, 29 Palms. So 29 Palms, Fort Irwin, and Barstow are kind of the least desirable places most people want to be stationed. But it's a great opportunity for a young lawyer. So I think that's a major difference for military lawyers versus civilian lawyers. Also, when it comes to things like courtroom time. So young lawyers in the military are given much more courtroom time than they would have the opportunity to have as a civilian practitioner at an early stage of their career. So for lawyers who are really interested in just getting right into it and doing trials and litigating, it's a great opportunity for those types of lawyers as well. Yeah, it sounds like very similar to my career field of civil engineering, where you got to do all this hands-on stuff that you never would be able to do in the civilian world, especially as like a brand new out of college person, you know, where you would have to wait a few years before you got to go and be like a project manager and do all the different things that we got to do. Exactly, exactly the same. And I think that's one of the really great benefits of the military, you get great career experience so much faster than you could in the civilian world. Yeah, it's something that I never really thought about, but it's been coming up as like a theme over and over, either through interviews or just stuff that I see on LinkedIn. And I'm like, military really opens a lot of doors in ways that you don't realize as a young 20-something-year-old, I would say, kid who (laughs) thinks they know everything and they know nothing. Yeah. Now that I'm at the age I'm at, being in my 20s did seem like being a kid. (laughs) At the time, it didn't feel like that. But in retrospect, I was a kid. I I feel the same way. And now a word from our sponsor. 
How is your child's school celebrating Month of the Military Child? Mother's Day? Veterans Day? Why not suggest a woman veteran children's book author for an engaging remote author visit with model airplanes and flight suits? I'm Air Force veteran and author Graciela Tiscareño Sato, founder of Gracefully Global Group. We're the educational publishing firm creating the first ever bilingual children's book series where mom flies the jet. The series was inspired by my own decade of service on board the KC-135 flying gas station. I will pipe into any elementary school classroom for free in English, Spanish, or both for any educator who buys a Captain Mama teacher pack of 21 or 31 books and embroidered patches for their students. Call area code 510-542-9449 to inquire or email sales at gracefullyglobal.com. Please share this info with parents and teachers you know. At Gracefully Global Group, we are in the business of inspiration. Let's get back to the show. So you said your first station was in Barstow and you got to do a lot of really cool stuff because you were like hands on and doing things that you wouldn't get to do in the civilian sector. Where did you go after that assignment? After that, I went to Quantico, Virginia, to the Marine Corps Embassy Security Group headquarters. And that is the command that's responsible for all of the Marines who are stationed at all of the embassies and consulates around the world. So very geographically dispersed. I think we, at the time, we were in 140 different countries. So it was quite an experience to have Marines everywhere, literally. And I was the legal officer for that command. So I dealt with a variety of legal issues that arose both within the command and also sometimes with the State Department because the Marine Corps Embassy Security Group works so closely with the State Department given their mission. So there's a lot of overlap. And that was also a really phenomenal experience because being able to work with the State Department, being able to work with Marines in so many different places, being able to travel to some of those places was interesting as well. So I really cherished the time that I had at Marine Corps Embassy Security Group. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Where was like one of your favorite places you got to travel to? One of my favorite places was Thailand because it was so different culturally from the United States. I feel like traveling to Europe is very similar to being in the United States. There's a lot of similar cultural elements. But if you go to Thailand, it's a completely different culture. And it was a really interesting experience because I learned so much about Thailand, about the Thai people, about their culture and their religions. I loved sightseeing there. Every moment I got, I tried to go see a temple or a Buddha or (laughs) do something that I could only do in Thailand. So that was one of my favorite places. Sounds really interesting and such a cool experience. And so how long were you stationed there? How far into your career are we? This was my second duty station. So I had been in the Marine Corps between four and seven years at that point, um, my fourth to seventh year. And I was a captain, so I was still young in my career. And I had just been selected for major when I decided to leave active duty and go into the reserves. And why did you decide to make that transition from active duty to reserves? I was really thinking about my long-term career as a lawyer, and my concern was if I stayed 
on active duty until I retired as a lawyer, that my career options later might be more limited. And if I left at that point, just before the 10-year mark, when you kind of have to make the (laughs) decision of, do I stay in for, am I a lifer or not? I decided I should really work on my civilian career and see if I can develop my civilian career as a lawyer just for my long-term career goals and development. The only problem is I didn't really know what my long-term career goals were other than I thought I should work on them, but I would figure them out as I went. (laughs) So (laughs) I kind of put the cart before the horse and it was a very difficult decision to leave active duty. I love the Marine Corps and it's so hard to be the one to say, okay, I have to leave. So I stayed in the reserves pretty much as a compromise to myself because I was having a difficult time deciding to completely separate myself from the Marine Corps. And I um, decided to stay in the reserves and say, okay, well, at least I can have a little bit of Marine Corps in my life. Yeah, that really resonates with the whole, like, I'm going to leave and I'm going to work on my career, but maybe I should actually like figure out what that means. And I feel like the transition class that they give you I don't know if you went through one are kind of just like get a job and you're like okay and you don't really think about like what kind of job like what options are there and it's just like get a job and really should talk more about what that actually means and go into what type of job I should be looking for like what be it would be a good fit for me especially based on there's so many different options as lawyers or whatever career field it is so that that makes a lot of sense that you were like I need to get a job check yes without thinking, where is this job going to lead me? Or what's my ultimate goal? And how do I get a job that leads to that ultimate goal? But you're right. I basically went on USA Jobs, applied for a bunch of government jobs, and just wanted to see what kind of responses I would get without a real strategy. Yeah, I think that's a normal military transition story, unfortunately. And so you stayed in the reserves. And did you find a job that you enjoyed or that eventually got you to start thinking about where you wanted to go? Yes. It was really, I think, a little bit of divine intervention that led me to this ultimate career that I'm on. I mentioned my father was a Marine. He was in Vietnam and he had some rough experiences there, as most people did. He knew that he had some problems when he got back from Vietnam and he went to the VA because he was so stressed out. He wasn't sleeping. His hair was falling out in big clumps. He knew something's wrong with me. He went to the VA. This was in the, I would say, first half of the 1970s. And they said, yeah, there's something wrong with you. You have a personality disorder and there's nothing we can do for you. So... He was naturally discouraged. He did not go back to VA and he spent decades dealing with the after effects of the Vietnam War pretty much on his own. And sometimes he was successful and sometimes he wasn't. Right after that, he tried to go to college on the GI Bill, but he had a drug and alcohol problem because he was self-medicating and couldn't make it through college. He couldn't finish college. Then he ended up getting arrested with some of his friends when they were burglarizing a pawn shop. Again, this was in the 1970s. And 
After he was arrested, the judge saw his Marine Corps tattoos on his arms in the courtroom. And the judge asked my dad, are you a Vietnam veteran? My dad said yes. And the judge said, you have two choices. I'm going to sentence you to 10 years in prison, or you can go to the VA and you can get clean. So naturally, my dad decided to go back to the VA and get off drugs. It took him a year, a very hard time trying to get his life straight and trying to get off the drugs that he was using, but he did it. And he had a really strong motivation. He didn't want to go to prison for 10 years. So he became eventually a successful entrepreneur. And I'm convinced he became an entrepreneur mostly because he couldn't work for other people because of his mental health condition. And it was too difficult for him to conform to a regular working environment. So he sort of had to create his own opportunities. And he did. And then when I was in law school, my parents were empty nesters because both of their kids had left for college once I went to law school. And that was when my mom said to my dad, if you don't get some help, I'm divorcing you. I can't live this way anymore. And he went back to the VA. This was now in the 1990s, late 1990s, and tried to get his benefits, tried to get them to diagnose him properly and for him to get the disability compensation that he had been lacking for decades. I started helping my dad when I was in law school with his claim. And I was really surprised at how hard it was and how VA expected veterans who were legally unsophisticated to fight this huge bureaucracy with hyper-technical requirements. So my dad would receive these claims decisions from VA. I remember when I was in law school and I would read them and I would say like, I don't even know, I'm in law school and I don't even know what to make of this dad. I don't know how you could, you really need a lawyer. So after 10 years of him fighting VA for his benefits, he finally got his benefits. During that time, I graduated from law school, spent eight years on active duty with the Marine Corps, and was thinking about what is my next step going to be now that I'm leaving active duty and going into the reserves. And of course, in the back of my mind was, well, my dad's a veteran. He needs a lawyer. There's probably other veterans who need lawyers. Maybe I should look into helping veterans because this seems to be an area of need. From that, I found a clerkship at the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, which was a court I didn't even know existed before I started helping my dad. And I said, wow, there's a court of appeals just for veterans claims, dad. Your case may eventually end up there. And they happened to be looking for clerks. So I applied for a clerkship and got it and spent the first three years after leaving active duty clerking at the court and really getting a very thorough and deep understanding of veterans law. And from there, I've spent the last 11 years in different positions, either representing veterans or advocating for veterans when it comes to their benefits, both from VA and other government agencies. Wow, that's kind of a cool story how your dad's experience and had it such an impact on your life. It kind of gave you that like guiding force of where you wanted to go in a backwards way of where you didn't really know. But because of that, you found helping veterans. And that's what you're doing today. Exactly. I really feel like it was a beacon, like you should be doing this. 
I was lucky that it worked out too. And I think that it was just meant to be this way. Yeah. And you deployed, was that when you were in the reserves? Yes. So I left active duty and when I was joining the reserves, the reserves is such a different experience because you kind of have to find your own career path in the reserves. So I left active duty and I thought, well, I have to find a reserve unit. And I just called an, uh, an office in headquarters Marine Corps that was responsible for reservists. And I said, I'm a judge advocate. I'm a reservist. Are there any reserve units that need judge advocates? Because I don't even know where to begin. And they said, oh, yeah, there's this civil affairs group that's right up the street from you. And they have vacant billets for judge advocates. You should check into that. So I spoke with the civil affairs unit and they said, yeah, we do have vacant billets for judge advocates, but what we really need are civil affairs officers. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, I'm not a civil affairs officer. So, and they said, don't worry, we'll train you. We'll get you the secondary MOS and you can fill a civil affairs office billet because we're leaving for Afghanistan in a year and we really need civil affairs officers. So I thought, okay, that sounds great. <laughs> I'll just do it. It was a new, it was something new and exciting to try. So I got the secondary MOS of civil affairs and then be spent five years as a civil affairs officer in the reserves, including in 2011, a deployment to Afghanistan. That's interesting. Yeah. So I, I saw on the interview questions that I asked before that it was civil affairs and I was like, how did that happen? It was kind of a bait and switch by the reserve unit. <laughs> they were like, yes, we need you. But we also need you to do this instead. Right. It turned out to be really fun, though. So let's talk about what civil affairs is. I know a little bit because when I deployed to Afghanistan on my PRT, we had a civil affairs unit. I don't think people who don't have that military connection will really know what that is. I think I don't even know what it is. And I had people on my team doing it's that. It's pretty amorphous. Yep. So... There is a stereotype of civil affairs as we're the people who just hand out candy to kids in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that's actually not part of our official duties. But <laughs> if it means that it makes people like us, maybe we'll do it. Really, the civil affairs function is supposed to enable the infantry units to do their jobs easier. So... Inevitably, when an infantry unit goes into an area, especially if they're going into a new area of AOR, they're going to cause a lot of disruption. So there's two ways to do it. You can either just go in, break stuff, take over, and be kind of the viewed as the invading force. And that probably will make people not like you. Or you could do it kind of more diplomatically. And maybe in advance of going there, you talk to people and say, hey, there's some stuff going on here that we really need to address. And we're going to be arriving. And this is what we're going to be doing. Can we get you to support us? Can we get your help? Who do we need to talk to to make sure that we're not breaking stuff, that we're not ruining your livelihoods? Let's work together here. 
So really, that's the civil affairs dimension that we try to make it a little less disruptive (laughs) to the extent that we can. Of course, that's not always possible given the nature of warfare. But where that's not possible, then we try to come in and soften the blow after the Marines are already there. So say we can't give people advance notice of everywhere we're going to go. So surprise, the Marines are here breaking stuff and, and possibly, you know, causing a lot of damage and you're not going to like it. But now that we're here, sorry, we couldn't tell you in advance, but let's work together. What can we do to fix you know, your building that we destroyed. Or by the way, we need to use your farmland as an outpost. So can we compensate you for your farmland in some way so we can use it? And it just makes it easier in theory for the infantry to do their job if we can deal with the civil element as well and not just make them mad at us all the time. Yeah, and so you guys are... With the infantry, so you're out on the front lines, and this you deployed in 2011, which was before women could be in combat. That's what everyone says. But you guys were out there. Were you attached to an infantry unit? Yes, I was a tra- attached to an inf- infantry unit at the company level. So I was pretty far down the the chain, and I had a team of ten, uh, nine Marines, and one Navy corpsman, and we were attached to an infantry company at a forward operating base. So it was kind of the wild, wild west. There, It was a small forward operating base, and we didn't have a lot of the comforts of places like Camp Leatherneck or other areas in, or maybe in Kabul. It was really like being in the wild, wild west, which was fun and challenging, especially as a woman. We did have between two and three other women Marines there at any given time as part of the female engagement team, though. So I was never completely by myself as a woman there, but we were definitely vastly outnumbered. So I was also, it was also unusual for a woman Marine to be a civil affairs team leader at that time. So I was a woman leading an entire team of men, and that was a little confusing sometimes. (laughs) I I think that there were numerous times that people thought I was part of the female engagement team and not part of the civil affairs team. And while the female engagement team and the civil affairs team worked very closely together, we technically had separate missions. Yeah, that's really interesting. And the dynamics of all of that and... The challenges of being, yeah, being a woman in the Marine Corps, being the team lead. And yeah, that's a lot. Looking back, I feel like it was a lot. At the time, it just seemed to be just another thing you do in the Marine Corps. And I think that that happens to a lot of women in the military. You just go through your experience in the military thinking, this is just a normal thing for me to deal with. This is just another day at the office, you know? And then you look back on it later and you're like, wow, that was really an unusual challenge that I had to overcome. But when you're in the mix of it, it's just another another task. Yeah. Yeah. I really relate to that too. Cause when I deployed with the PRT, I never thought about the fact that I was attached to an infantry unit and that I was a woman. Like it, they just said, 
you're going on this deployment and I was like okie dokie that's what I'll do and like then afterwards and then in 2013 and 2016 when they made like this big deal and I was like but women are already doing you know like they've been attached to units and they just do whatever they're told so it's it was kind of the way they PR'd it the PR marketing side of it that the military did which I think they were trying to like some people were trying to stop it from happening and that's probably why it came off the way it did but women have just been going out and doing their jobs for so long and then they try and I don't know I don't I feel like my words are falling apart I know exactly what you mean. And for me, the experience was pretty much seamless. There was at the very beginning of the deployment, some concern about whether given the culture, especially in that area of Afghanistan, I was in a really small area called Nauzad, which was very remote, not at all modernized, not at all used to atypical gender roles. So there was a little concern that I wouldn't be able to be seen as an authority figure to the local population. But as soon as I arrived and I was able to really interact with the civilian population and with the local Afghan government officials, it became apparent that it wouldn't it wouldn't only it would not only not jeopardize the mission, but it would add a different dynamic to it that may have been missing in the past that could be used in our favor. So it added maybe a little human factor to the Marines presence there. I think when the Afghans saw a woman doing this job, they thought, well, she's probably not all that bad. She's a woman. She's probably not here to just kill us. And I think they see kind of the, I don't know how else to put it other than maybe the softer side of the mission. And it made them a little bit more open to sharing concerns. Of course, there would be different things said to me than were said to men, but we had men on the team too. So we had both angles at least. So I think it really worked out as an asset versus a detractor. So I think that after the senior leadership in the Marine Corps saw like, oh, actually, this isn't working out too bad. It gave them a lot more comfort. And the Marines who I worked with at the company level were so professional. I mean, the Marines were, I don't think that I ever sensed any doubt in my capabilities of doing my job as a woman. And that really said a lot about their professionalism and their maturity in carrying out the mission and not worrying about these irrelevant factors. So I I consider myself lucky in that respect. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I feel like that there was just a different aspect. And like, of course, the men on my team, like they wanted to take care of me, but that was their job. <laughs> their job was to keep me safe. And so they made sure to do that. And I think maybe it was a little easier to take care of me because I was more willing to be like, okay, take care of me. Like, I'm fine with that. But that was their job. They were the infantry and I was the technical expertise. And so it worked really well together to have that. And and I think that's a, a great example of explaining like why the laws change, because like you said, there was this female aspect missing the softer side or the just a different way to interact with the Afghan people that wasn't available unless there was women present. So that's a really good point. Yeah. And really, um, 
women make up half the population, regardless of what country you're in, we're roughly half the population. So you can't pretty much pretend like half the population doesn't exist. Yeah, that's so true. Well, it sounds like such an interesting experience, especially being reserved. And so like getting activated and going on that deployment and not doing lawyer stuff, doing something completely different. So that sounds really interesting. I really enjoyed that part of it because as a lawyer, sometimes your job gets a little (laughs) dull, (laughs) a lot of reading, a lot of writing, a lot of legal research, and to be able to mix it up a little bit by doing different things in the military, I think has kept my career so much more enjoyable. And that's another thing that I appreciate about being a lawyer, especially in the Marine Corps, because you get to do different things and you don't have to be just a lawyer. You can be a civil affairs officer. You could change your MOS if you like. You can change your positions. You can just really explore a lot more as a professional that way. Yeah, that's so interesting. So Did you say that you are out of the reserves officially now? I'm still in. I'm still in at least for two more years because I transferred my GI Bill to my daughter. (laughs) So I incurred a little additional service obligation as a result of that. So I'm still in at least for another couple of years. And the time has flown by, as I know this happens with everybody in the military. When you look back at 20 years, it seems like a blink of an eye. Yeah, my husband is getting closer to 20 years. And I'm like, weren't we just lieutenants? Like, what happened? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It goes by really fast. Crazy how fast the time goes by. That's really cool that you're able to transfer your GI Bill benefits, which is a a benefit of the post 9-11 GI Bill, so that you were able to transfer it and incur an extra service commitment just the way the same way you do on active duty. Yes. And your service commitment is just to the reserves instead of on active duty. So it's hugely beneficial. And I try to remind everybody who I speak to, to transfer their GI Bill if they can, if they don't plan to use it, because that is a very valuable benefit to service. Yeah, I agree. Sometimes I wish I had done the reserves because I'm like, there's so many benefits that I like didn't know about when I left active duty that make me think, hmm, I really should have spent more time considering the reserves. When You're I right. Left. This is not something that's well known by people who are leaving active duty, the real benefits of staying in the reserves. And I know when I was transitioning from active duty, I think I received a 30-minute brief during my transition assistance class on the reserves. But had I had somebody who I could really speak to about the reserves more in depth, I or that anybody could have in my transition assistance class, I think that they would have learned so much more that you don't know just from a 30-minute brief of this is what the reserves and this is how you join if you want to. I think that the benefits are really valuable. I specifically asked, I was like, can I transfer my GI Bill before I have children? And they were like, no. But no one was like, after you have a child, you could get in the reserves and then you could transfer it. And like, that would have been worth it. But no one ever told me that. And so I didn't do it. And I was like... I really wish I would have known that because just having that benefit alone to be able to switch from active duty to reserves and then transfer my GI Bill to my son 
would have been awesome to have. And I didn't know. And it would have been roughly the equivalent of a $60,000 bonus. Right? (laughs) So true. Yeah. The more I do this podcast, the more I'm like, man, there's so many benefits to the reserves and National Guard that people, like you said, you get a 30 minute brief and chap and and at the time I was just ready to get out of the military, but I didn't think about like that was as an option. And it really is something that I regret. I think it's a really great option to, I try, first of all, I try to convince everybody to stay in reserves who's leaving, but I think it's a really great option for people who are leaving the military and plan to be either full-time or mostly full-time parents because it allows you a career option that you can do super part-time, but still have some career progression and some benefits in the process. I remember when I was on active duty, I met this lieutenant colonel who was a judge advocate and she was a reservist and she was a full-time mom and still a reserve judge advocate. So basically her day job was being a full-time mom and then her, her work life was being a reserve judge advocate. And I thought, wow, that's really amazing (laughs) because you get to still have your professional identity, your professional career progress, but also be a full-time mom if that's what you want to be. You don't have to necessarily completely give up one for the other. Yeah. And the flexibility to go back to active duty, like after your kids are little, if that's something you still want to do, you have that option. I recently uh, interviewed the retired chief warrant officer Phyllis Wilson from the Women's Memorial and she went off active duty and became a reservist and that's what she was a full-time mom and then she would go back and forth from like active duty reserves and then ended up becoming a chief warrant officer five when she left the army and it's just that flexibility of being able to make the military work around your lifestyle and what you want to do. Yes. The flexibility of the reserve lifestyle is a huge value added factor. I love it. So is there anything else from your career? People can hear more about your lawyer career after you left the military. If they want to go back to the podcast episode that you did for the Military Officers Association of America. But is there anything else from your career that you wanted to touch on? I have one more question. I think that the major things that I've noticed in my career when I look back over the last 20 years is that the first portion of my career, I felt fairly invisible. So as a woman in the Marine Corps, so I was always, you know, one of the few women in any command, in any meeting. And I kind of accepted that with a grain of salt and didn't give it much weight because there wasn't a lot of attention paid to women in the military at that time. And in the last half of my career, I noticed that women are much more visible and that our issues are finally kind of bubbling to the surface in a good way and not necessarily in a bad way in ways that make people say, oh, women are valuable contributors. Yeah, we should make sure that they're fully integrated. And I feel like it's sort of, I've seen so much change in just my career. And I think that this has a lot to do with 
this is probably a dated term, but the information age. So with the advent of social media and of information sharing being so easy, that has really, in my opinion, benefited women in the military. And we're no longer seen as sort of a oddity or an anomaly that because we've been able to be seen as contributing valuable members of the military, we've really been able to make some significant progress overall. And I think that people like you and other people who make sure that we get visibility really have been the change that we needed forever. When I started looking into stories about military women, there, I realized that there weren't enough stories and that even like the history and now like there's history books coming about just focused on military women and all this stuff that nobody even knew just a couple of years ago. And I think still a lot of people don't know. And that's like the work that we're doing is to get those stories out there so that people know. But yeah, it is exciting to see how much change is happening. And I I have a lot of hope for the future that things will get even better for women in the military based on like social media and all the things going on. I think so, too. So that that leads really well into my last question, which is what advice would you give to young women who are considering military service? My advice is make bold decisions when you're young and you can do them. When you're young and when you're early in your career, that's the time to take risks. And that's the time when those risks are most likely to pay off long-term. If you are considering it, don't wait. Don't say, I'll think about it in two years or I'll wait until you know this next phase of my life is over. When you're young and when you're early in your career, that's the time to do things that are brave, bold, and risky because that is when the biggest payoff is. And that's when you can actually do those things. Don't wait until you're 40 to decide you're going to do something to make a bold move because you'll probably wish you had done it sooner. And I think that if you're considering it, that you probably won't regret it. I think that if you are making the right decision for yourself and you're able to do it, you're going to get some kind of great experience out of it. Yeah, I agree. And I think you might not have the self-confidence that you can do it, but you can do it. And I mean, someone recently reached out and they were like, I was so young and scared. And I was like, why do you think I wasn't young and scared? I just did it. I don't really know why I was willing to take that risk. But being young, being shy and timid, that's not a reason to stop you. The military, they'll bust it out of you and make you figure out how to find that self-confidence that you need. Yes, it is life-changing. I was just recently thinking about the same thing. If what would have been different in my life had I not joined the military. And I really think that some of the best moments of my life just never would have existed because they were tied to my military experience. If that's not promotion for military. Yeah. And if you're thinking of joining the military, you have questions about military life. I just started a YouTube channel called A Girl's Guide to the Military that I have created videos to help women who are joining the military. And thank you so much for sharing your story. I really love learning about both being a judge advocate in the military and doing civil affairs. It's such an interesting combination. And I loved hearing your story. 
Thank you so much, Amanda. I really loved speaking with you as well, as always. to this week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book Women of the Military on Amazon. Every dollar helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support.